The reading for today is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, and chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Laura. Morning, Redemption. I am glad that we are a church committed to church growth. It's wonderful. Yeah, it took a minute. All right, so um, if you would turn in your Bibles or on your app to uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're primarily going to be in those first four verses, um, but uh, I want to set it up a little bit, and then I, there's a couple other things I want to do, and then I want to come back to that. Um, we just need to remember that the reason Laura also read 5, 15 through 21 is that that is still the foundation for everything that we're talking about in this, what we're calling a six-week mini-series in the midst of the book of Ephesians. We've been going through all of Ephesians since the beginning of the year, and we're, we're getting close to the end now. But this particular six weeks, what, what um, a lot of people call the household code that Paul is unpacking for us, begins in verse 15 of chapter 5 and ends in verse 9 of chapter 6. And we're spending six weeks in it, and it's a section of Scripture uh, that just doesn't lend itself too easily to being digested um, in, in, in one uh, message that's different from others. And so we're asking you, in particular, during this six-week series, and this is week five, uh, if you've missed any of the, of the messages um, on Sunday, to go back and listen to the podcast and get caught up because there will be narrative gaps for you if you don't do that. Everything that we're talking about is rooted in verses 5 through 21, and especially uh, the, the nexus of this entire section, we believe, is verse 21, out of reverence for Christ, we are to submit to one another. Uh, it's it's a, this idea of mutual submission, but again, we want to remind you that mutual is not a synonym for the word same. That mutual submission is going to look different based on uh, your role and the authority that God has given to you in, in your particular role. For instance, uh, parents and children do submit to each other, but it looks totally different. Parents have given, uh, God has given the parents the authority of leading and being in charge of the household, and so their submission to their children is going to look way different, uh, if you want to call it that, than, than the way their children, the children are supposed to submit to parents, and we're going to get into all of that. Uh, before we do, though, so many of you ask about this, so I wanted to give you this update because it really just happened recently. Um, our church, Redemption Church, has two founding pastors, and they are Justin Anderson and Tom Schrader. Tom is 68 years old. He's the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church, which eventually merged with Praxis, which was Justin's uh, church. We were a Praxis congregation before we became uh, Redemption, so we were part of Justin's uh, church. Um, Tom, as our founding pastor, uh, uh, has uh, 
pretty well known throughout the valley. He not only uh, planted this church that grew in, to, to become thousands and thousands of people, um, but also uh, he does this midweek Bible study called Priority Living, which literally thousands of people over the last 30 years have attended. Um, last spring, early spring, he was um, diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And uh, he was specifically told that he had to stop all of his teaching, all of his public speaking engagements. They didn't want him to drive anymore. Uh, the way Tom describes it is they didn't take away my car, but they hid the keys. So there was like always this little bit of hope that he held out that he'd be able to drive again. But, but they said, you're, you're not going to ever be able to teach again. And, and the doc several doctors told him this, you will never be able to teach again, and you won't, you, we don't want you driving ever again. And it was really hard. He, he was homebound, essentially, 68 years old, and he's homebound, um, spending all of his time sitting in his living room. And, and when he did get out of the house, uh, Sandra, his wife, would take him to the doctor, and that was essentially uh, it. I was, I'm, I've been visiting him every week. Uh, we, I have to be out in Gilbert anyway. They live in Gilbert on Wednesdays anyway. And so I'm visiting him every Wednesday. It's kind of a Tuesdays with Maury thing, but it's Wednesdays with Tom. And, and I, it just, I don't want to be away from him. He's been, a, he's been like my spiritual father for, for decades. And, um, and, and literally just watching him and seeing him. I mean, he looked like he was going to die six months ago. He literally did. Uh, over the summer... He started to, like, get better. But we were told that he was never going to get better, repeatedly, by doctors. But he started to get better, and he started to get stronger. I remember the first time I, I went over there, he couldn't walk from the couch to a chair that was two feet away. I had to help him do that. Now he's up walking around. About six weeks ago, he started driving himself to church at the Gilbert Congregation every Sunday morning and going to church. Uh, and, and after being told he'll never teach again, um, Wednesday morning he went out to Gilbert and he taught priority living um, on schedule. He's not doing Thursdays. That would be too hard for him at this point. But now he's thinking that he might even be able to add Thursday. But he taught last Wednesday morning. There was a big crowd out there. It was really exciting. Nobody thought this would happen again. But this is, like a, this is really like a medical miracle. He was told he'd never be able to do this again. God is so good that he's, been, uh, he's allowed him to at least do this. And so I just wanted to let you know, people ask all the time, how's Tom? Right now, he's doing great. Next week, he may decide he can never teach again. He's too tired, but he recovered well from Wednesday, and he's doing great. So that's an update on Tom. We're very excited about that. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. As we sometimes say, yay, God. That's really awesome. Um, here's something else, again. Uh, this now helps us segue back into this passage about parents and, and children. Um, some of you have studied theology, and you've heard of the, the five points of Calvinism, okay? And if you've never heard that before, you can look it up if you want, but it, watch the NFL, it'd be more interesting. At any rate, um, we, we know the five points of Calvinism by an acronym. Anybody want to yell that out? TULIP. TULIP, yes, yes, that's right, TULIP, the TULIP acronym, yes. Well, um, I discovered earlier this week um, that there's also a TULIP, a five points of parenting. So here you go. T, totally exhausted. <laughs> U, unrelenting noise. I believe the Kimmels had something to do with coming up with this. L, leave your sibling alone. I, I said leave them alone. <laughs> and P, please just let me sleep. 
Isn't that about right? Okay, that's me acknowledging that parenting is really hard. And I'm a parent. Our, our daughters are 26 and 22. How they survived Jackie, I will never know, but they did, and that's really good. But I want to acknowledge that up front because now we're going to get into some, I think, very challenging stuff, especially in the midst of our culture, especially in the midst of some of people's histories, which I acknowledge. There's going to be, this is going to be hard at times. This is also, I hope, going to be liberating at times. But we're going to deal with, with pretty much everything. And like I said, once again, this paragraph, verses 1 through 4, look back at chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. The idea that you and I are to seek God's will and adapt our lives to God's will, submit our lives to his will. That's called wisdom. That's what Paul describes as wisdom. Foolishness is not seeking his will and expecting everybody else to adapt their lives to us and submit to us. That's Paul's definition of, of foolishness. And he says that we're to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not under the influence of anything in this world. It's not that uh, worldly influences are necessarily bad, but when they influence us more than what God has to say, that becomes a false god, that's idolatry, and that is a problem, and that's where foolishness uh, comes into play. And then, of course, the cross is at the center of all of this. Verse 21, out of reverence for Christ, because of what he has done, we are to submit to one another. And again, mutual submission does not mean same. Children submit to their parents by obeying them, literally listening under their parents. And parents, especially the fathers, submit to their children and to their family by nurturing their children in the Lord, by caring for them, by instructing them and encouraging them, and by spending time with them. So here's one way we would say it, and there, there's a line there, and there's some tension. Children are a priority, but they are not the priority. We have to be very careful about walking that line. They are a, a, pri a priority, but they are not necessarily the priority. You've heard me say before that when you have children, essentially you put your life on hold for the next 20 or 25 years, and that is true. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're idols, that, that, that you worship them as God. So here are some of the challenges that we run into. The, the first one, uh, pretty commonly known, is that everybody believes that they are a wonderful parent until they actually have children of their own, and then they find out it's a little bit more difficult. It's like everybody believes they're going to be a great manager until they become a manager, and they find out it's different. There are backstories to things that you've never experienced before that you can only experience once you get into uh, those things. Here's the other challenge, and we talked about this at the preaching collective last week. So you've got... 12, 14 pastors in there at the Preaching Collective, and all of them uh, ranging in ages from uh, early 30s to my age, which is 59, in various stages of parenting their children, all agreed that in our culture today, we have one of two mistakes that are generally being made by parents. The first one, and this is a big one, is over-adoration and idolization of our children. Over-adoring them, over idolizing them, turning them into literally little false gods in, in your homes. They are running the show. We need to understand that children are not the heads of the household. God is, and he's given that stewardship of being the heads of the household to the parents, not the children. But the other side of that is what we'd call avoidance of the children through lazy parenting, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. Uh, People have children be, because they think that's the thing to do, but they'd really rather not have to spend any time 
parenting them and working with them, and so they become lazy parents and even practice avoidance. So we need to remember children are not gods, and children are not persona non grata. They are human beings. They're little human beings who need a lot of help, but they're human beings nevertheless. Maybe that's the way we should treat them, okay? Not as gods and not as persona uh, non grata. So what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this passage, these four verses. Um, there's going to be some tough stuff and some liberating stuff, and then hopefully we'll get into some what I think might be some helpful um, application. And, and here's what you need to remember. You may be like me. Your parents, uh, your, your, your children are adults now, so you're done with that, and you may be thinking, I don't think I need this message. Why did I come here this morning? You need it because your children are going to have children, and you can help with that. Um, you're going you're to have other opportunities, hopefully, to be able to speak into lives as well. Or you may be single and you may be thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to have children at all. Well, if the statistics tell us anything, chances are 90% that even as a single person, you're going to eventually get married and you'll probably have children. And so this would be helpful to start thinking about this now rather than when they are teenagers and you're wondering what in the world to do. So it's good to even start talking about it now. So here you go, chapter, uh, verse 1, Paul writes, children, and, and there's going to be some nuance here, and I want to get into that, so you, you take a sip of caffeine and pay attention, but here, literally, it's little ones, so he's talking about little kids, okay? Uh, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That word obey is literally, in the ancient Greek, it's a compound word, hupo okeo, which means to listen under. Listen under. That's what it means to obey. And obedience has both an inward reverence and an outward action. So I'm sure that those of us who are parents, we've had that time when there was the outward action, but there wasn't much on the inward reverence. Even the inward reverence, uh, we need to be looking to try to call that out of our children, even if that means having longer conversations about what it means uh, to, to, to to have that inward reverence and to be able to ha have the right attitude as well about what is going on. And, and Paul says, at, at the end of this little clause, he says, for this is right. So why is it right? Well, to be sure, it's right because Paul is Jewish. He was a, a rabbi and a Pharisee before he became a Christian. So he knew the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, like nobody's business. And we've talked about this before, how he almost always had in the back of his mind as he's writing parts of the New Testament, he has that, um, that Jewish literature and tradition uh, and, and the understanding of God as Yahweh in the back of his mind as he writes it. So he's referring back to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 here. And so it is this commandment. It's, it's commandment number five. But also, it's just natural law. It's just natural law. Um, there has never, ever, 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 I want to make sure you memorize enough evers. Never, ever, 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 in the history of the world, been a culture that has survived children running the show. And as much as Hollywood would like to press us with that narrative in their movies, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Adults can't even run the world. What makes us think that children are going to be able to do it? it it's just goofiness. 
Also, consider the fifth commandment. It's interesting, the language here. There's some nuances, some difference. And Paul's getting ready to quote the fifth commandment in a minute, but he doesn't start there necessarily. The fifth commandment, uh, Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's different than obey your parents. Well, primarily because the Ten Commandments is more addressed to adults than it is to children and, and, and about children. It's, a, it's addressed to adults, and so honoring becomes the important thing in the Ten Commandments. I've been studying Exodus a lot lately, and there is this nuance here. So what we have here in Paul's passage are essentially two instructions. There's obey and there's honor. So children, little ones, need to obey. Adult children, however, they don't necessarily obey their parents, but they still have a responsibility to honor and respect their parents. And I know that's really difficult for some of us. I, I get that. But if you think about, again, the context of, of the Old Testament and what Paul is writing, he's even going back to Genesis 2.24, where God says... For the man will leave his mother and father and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Again, we've mentioned this. This was revolutionary in their ancient cultures at the time. Because what would happen in marriage is a man would go out and find a woman and bring that woman back to his family, and they would live with their family. The woman gave up all of her rights. The woman, um, the woman was the one that had to adapt to the new family, and the husband didn't have to do any of that. That's not what God is saying. He's saying both the man and the wife are going are to leave their families and start something new. But even in the midst of that, God says, as you're adults, leaving your family, you still must honor and respect your parents. You don't necessarily have to obey them, but you must treat them with honor and respect. It's one of the commandments. And I will tell you, as an early Christian, I had this wrong. I did not have a good relationship with my parents, especially my father, um, when I became a Christian. It was miserable, as a matter of fact. Some of you know I didn't speak to him at one point for four years, even though we lived about a mile from each other. For four years, I didn't speak to my father. And it was interesting because the faith community that I was in at the time, North Phoenix Baptist Church, they knew this was going on. And the elders, my elders, um, people who knew better, people who had wisdom, and people that I generally looked up to, um, they knew I was wrong. And they would counsel me. But it was interesting. They never counseled me with an edge of, you need to listen to me because I'm right. They counseled me with the understanding that what they were telling me was biblical truth. And then they would pull back. And they had the grace and the patience to allow the Holy Spirit to start working on me. They really believed the gospel. And they really trusted God and the Holy Spirit. And at first, I told them they were crazy. They were out of their minds. But I kept talking. I started reading scripture. The Holy Spirit began to convict me. And that four years was ended one Sunday when I said, I have to go and talk to my father. This, what I've been doing is not wrong. Regardless of what I believe he's done to me, what I've been doing is not right. I'm wrong. I need to go and tell him. I need to treat him with honor and respect, even though I don't agree with him. And that started our relationship all over again. And it was rocky and it was hard. But God used that. And I believe he used that in a profound way because it was 15 years later that he and my mom actually came to Christ and became Christians. But, but I was, in a, I was in, a, in a faith community that, that practiced patience with me. 
and understood the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this and, and, and how, you know, God is capable of taking a person from here to here in one snap of his fingers. That is true. But, but the most common way that, peop- that God works with his people is really transformation about a half an inch at a time as the Holy Spirit begins to reveal things to you and change your heart. That's generally how it's, how it's done. And, and I think back on that, on that experience, and I also, it just reminds me of what that pastor in, in Oshkosh said when I was up there this summer. His name is Jason Fieldler. He said, if, the, if you're reading your Bible and the Bible never changes your mind, you're either Jesus or you're in full-fledged denial. Because Jesus wrote it, so you're either Jesus or you're just in denial. Because believe me, there's stuff in the Bible that you and I do not agree with and don't like. But it's God's word, and it's true. I'm thankful for that patient community that, that dealt with me with grace, but also was willing to, to walk with me when I was wrong. One other thing to consider about the commandments, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail. I'm noted for my rabbit trails. Um, it's my greatest spiritual gift, some people think. But uh, something else to consider about the commandments, this command for the children to honor their parents. You know, of the Ten Commandments, there are only two that are stated positively. Eight of them are, are stated do nots. There's two that are stated as something that we should be actively doing. You know what the other one is? Honor the Sabbath. How are we doing with that? How are we doing honoring the Sabbath? Isn't that a struggle, in our, especially in our world today? It's kind of hard. And, and here's what I hear from a lot of people, and this is true. You need the Sabbath because you need rest. You need to be recreation, recreated. And that is true. That's a big part of it. But the biggest reason we need to honor the Sabbath is because it's every seven days and it reminds us who created this whole thing in the first place. By honoring the Sabbath, we are honoring God as creator as the sovereign, we're honoring him as God. And it's, it's interesting, it's the only ritual that you will find in the Ten Commandments too. So, honor your parents, honor the Sabbath, the two positively worded commandments. Anyway, verse 2. Now, Paul quotes Genesis 20, I'm sorry, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother, This is the first commandment with a promise. Honor, that word means to value and esteem, even in disagreement. I find it tragic that we live in a world today where you and I really are measured much more by what we dishonor than what we honor. Have you noticed that in our culture today? People want to be known for what they stand against, not what they stand for. What we're willing to dishonor, not what we're willing to live in honor of. And I would personally love to hear a rational, logical explanation for how that's progress, because I don't think it is. We need to do a little bit better at honoring and respecting. And, and just, again, a little bit of a rabbit trail. That honor, in my opinion, also includes, and biblical scholars have said this too, the idea that as your parents get too old to take care of themselves, you're going to be parenting your parents as well, that you need to help take care of them. My, my sister, primarily, my oldest sister and the rest of our family, allowed my parents, uh, both lived into their 90s and died at home because we were able to take care of them at home. We made that a priority in our life. 
And I want to encourage those of you in this room who are actually involved in doing that, because I know there are a lot of you, because it's really hard, and nobody thanks you for it. And, and, and so you need to know that is what's right. That is something that is, that is right. At any rate, this is a commandment, Paul says. So where's the power to keep a commandment? The Holy Spirit, by virtue of the gospel. And he says, this is the first commandment with a promise, and the only one of the ten with a promise. In other words, pay attention. <laughs> this is really important. There's a specific good result that is often manifested by this obedience and this honor. And what is the promise? Verse 3, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So go well. What exactly does that mean? Paul doesn't really quantify this. Live long, you'll live long in the land. What does this mean? Is there a chronological connection between obeying and honoring your parents and the fact that you're going to live into your mid-100s? Is there something going on there? Is there, a, is there a cause and effect? Is there a correlation? Maybe it's proverbial. I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule. Maybe that's what it is, but, but it is wisdom, and, and, and those who live with wisdom on average outlive their peers. It's kind of like a it's kind of like the counsel that your mother might give you. Don't ever get into a car that's being driven by somebody who's been, who's been drinking. Oh, come on, Mom, don't be such a stick in the mud. It's fun to get into a car with somebody who's been drinking. Maybe it's just wisdom. But maybe it's the fact that world, the world and societies are much better off and people live longer and prosper more when two simple things are done. Children honor their parents, and parents honor the responsibilities they have to their children and to their spouses. If we could just get those two things right, that would be amazing, and it would be transformative. And then verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. That word means training and correction. Children need correction and training. And instruction, that word means wisdom and warning of the Lord. And again, this Paul just is known for this, and, and we need to see this. It's not just Paul saying, this is bad, stay away from it. He always gives us something much better to turn toward. He's always giving us the gospel to turn toward, Christ to turn toward, the, the, the activity, the proper activity to turn toward. Don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and the, and the instruction of the Lord. And, and by the way, just because... Paul says, fathers, it doesn't mean that the mother's role and responsibilities are diminished in any way. But fathers are the ones who really need to set the pace and lead sacrificially and shoulder the burden, and so Paul addresses the parents this way. But there's also this as well. Lots of people have written about this. I, I've, I've experienced this myself. Fathers often believe that the best way to raise kids is through harshness and negativity. I, I'm from a generation that had a lot of fathers that said something like this. Well, nobody ever gave me a break when I grew up, so I'm not giving any of my kids a break. I shouldn't have to say this, but a domineering and thoughtless father is probably a little bit discouraging to a child. And that word provoke, some translations... Instead of provoke, they, they, they translate it as exasperate, but both really mean the same thing. It's an underlying desire to sort of annoy the child. I don't, I don't want to try to annoy, maybe a little. Okay. But why just the fathers? So is Paul saying that mothers can provoke and exasperate their children? Why do mothers get to have all the fun? I don't understand that. Fathers have the tendency to be harsher in general. Mothers shouldn't exasperate either, but let's be honest, dads 
tend to have a little bit greater capacity toward this. And what is the discipline and instruction of the Lord anyway, going deeper? Well, it's wisdom and wise counsel, which means conversations with your children that you're leading and you're running, not just them. They, they need to lead and run some too, but you're the one that needs to also lead. It means warnings and training. It means time and patience and perseverance. It means grace and forgiveness. It means trust. You're building relationships here. It means rebuke and correction when needed. It also means empathy. Remembering how hard it was to be a, a child. And I know it's hard to be an adult too. I get that. And encouragement, but no helicoptering. Did you know that's an actual verb now, helicoptering? How are the children, how are our children ever going to be able to handle the world if you helicopter them until they're 18? If you don't expose them to anything, just hovering over them all the time? I had a, a couple semesters ago, I had a Communication 100 student who was taking a sociology class and she was writing her term paper on the unintended consequences of helicopter parents. <laughs> See, kids will never learn or grow or discover if they never fail, if they never suffer the consequences of their mistakes and their decisions, if they never have challenges, if they never have to think, if they never have to discern, and if they never experience tension or friction. Now, I know I, I've been doing this a long time. Somebody's going to email me and say, so we should just let them run out in the street. Of course not. <laughs> you know, there's some context here. But, but you need to train them. We need to instruct them. I, I, I'm telling you, I teach at the college level, and I'm guessing Cody could agree with this. It's fascinating the number of 18 to 22-year-olds there are in the world who wouldn't know what critical thinking means if it bit them in the face. They have no ability to do that. And I blame the parents mostly for that, for never giving them the chance to think critically about things. I know you want to protect them. You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to be hurt. But sooner or later, you're going to hurt them by overprotecting them. We need to be careful of that. So the common denominator in all of this, there are three of them, time, patience, and perseverance. I believe we live in a culture that understands perseverance, but we also live in a culture that is starved for time. We are time bankrupt. And so we have little patience. And so time and patience are probably the ones that we need to work on the most, especially as it relates to parenting. Now, it's going to get very dark for a few minutes. And I apologize for that, but we need to bring this up because it's in the text. While the primary thrust of this verse, verse 4, is to remind parents in general and fathers in particular about their responsibilities to serve their children with reasonable discipline and encouragement and realistic expectations so that their children have the opportunity to live a flourishing life. There's also a darker side to the instruction here that, that is going to be difficult, I know, for some of us to hear. Nevertheless, it is, a, it is a historical reality, and it's not rare. Here it is. Many children in their culture, first century Mediterranean culture, many children were unwanted by their majority culture. That maybe sound just a little bit familiar? As a result, there were two general ways that parents, fathers in particular, dealt with it. There was a crude form of abortion. Yes, historically we know that abortion has been practiced for at least 3,000 years that we know of. There have always been reasons why a parent doesn't want a child. 
There's always been reasons for that. That's not just a recent phenomenon. And, and human beings are creative. We'll figure out a way to do it. Okay? The second way is through abandonment. Now, here you go. Again, this is hard stuff. Abandonment was especially and commonly practiced by the father taking an unwanted baby, going outside of the, the city where the garbage heap was, and placing the baby on the garbage heap, which would eventually every night be burned. That's their form of abandonment or post-delivery abortion. Many scholars assert that Paul also writes this verse implicitly to remind parents that children are a gift of God and that these, the practices of eliminating children were never, be, were never to be embraced by Christ followers. Abortion or abandonment. We've been led to believe by the world that abortion is really a modern dilemma, part of our contemporary society. And it's just a sophisticated medical procedure. That's just not true. How many times have I said, know your history? If you don't know your history, you will be deceived by this world. And that's the way the world wants it. Ancient rabbis and priests commenting on the Torah, the Mosaic Law, uh, wrote that abortion was immoral. And the verses they used were Jeremiah 1.5, where God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Psalm 139, King David writes, For you formed, to God, he's speaking to God, You formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And as, uh, as early as the second century in the early church, church leaders also spoke against abortion. Ancient, crude forms of abortion. Now, I know how painful this is. I know there are people in this room who have probably had abortions, and, and I know this is hard. And, and what you need to remember is that abortion is not the unforgivable sin. There's only one, and that's unbelief. And, and God is here to love you through that and be able to help you reconstruct that life so that you have an, a godly and, 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 and Holy Spirit-filled perspective on your life experiences. That's important. God will use those experiences, believe it or not. But it also should be instructive about just how deceitful this world is and how willing the world is to deceive people in order to inflict their agenda. We need to remember that. Know your history. And then abandonment. We have an abandonment problem in our culture, too. We have 16,000 children in the foster care system in Arizona. Why do you think Redemption Church is so deeply involved in foster care and adoption? It's because that's the gospel-centered thing to do. We feel like, yeah, we have a responsibility to be involved in that. And so we have Redemption, Foster Care, and Adoption to deal with abandonment. Okay, let me end with some application. Um, parenting classes and books are great, and I highly recommend them. But we need to keep them in perspective as well. Um, think of, some of you are golfers. People pay me not to golf, so I stay away from golf course. But like, you have a golf bag and you have several golf clubs, maybe 12 or 14 clubs in there that you get somebody else to carry around for you. Um, parenting classes and books maybe are like a, a three iron and a five iron. But they're not, they're not the whole bag. They're not everything. They're helpful tools, but you need, you need a lot of other parts, okay? And, and, and really, the, 
the best tool is practice and experience, which I know it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of on-the-job training. You need to work at it and learn at it as you're doing it. That's true. Last fall, during midweek Bible study, I was teaching a series, and, and at one point I talked about how I, I've been married at that point for 30 years. Our children were 25 and 21 at the time. I've been a Christian for um, 31 years at that time, and I said, you know what? I would make a really great young husband and father right now. Well, yeah, after 30 years' experience and living in the gospel for that long, yes, that's true. The message there is to keep plugging away. Understand you're on a journey. Pick, up, pick yourself up after the failures and keep moving forward and hang in there with it and learn from your mistakes. So 30 years doing this, here are the, some things that I think are helpful. These are not hard and fast rules. They may not work in your context. You may not even like them. This is what Jackie and I determined to do with our children, and, and we think it helped us. So just some basic ideas, suggestions. Here you go. Number one, we knew before we even started having kids that we wanted to raise them to be independent of us and dependent upon God. We had seen in the church a lot of really insecure parents who we believed were raising their children in specifically in a way that made their children depend, uh, depend on them in a very unhealthy way to sort of gratify the parent's ego. Now, sure, you have to help your kids. You've got to be there. You've got to be their parents. But, but, to, but to make it about your own personal glory, that's going to ruin your kids. But, but, but you need to raise them also to be dependent not on themselves, but on God. So that's what we tried to do with Shelby and Darby, is we wanted them to understand our relationship and that it was a gradual thing, but eventually they were, they were going to be weaned off us, but they were going to be drawn towards God. That's what we wanted to do with them. Here's the second thing. This one I get the most pushback on. We didn't have rules. We had conversation. We did not have, okay, I we had one rule in our house. Don't ever slam doors. And frankly, that goes back to when I was a kid. I was visiting a friend one day. I was maybe 10 years old. I heard a door slam, and, and his four-year-old little brother had his, had his uh, fingers in, in the door jam. And this blood-curdling, every time I hear a door slam, I jump. Here, common uh, contemporary vernacular. I'm triggered by slamming doors. Don't slam doors. That was the only rule we had. And interestingly enough, we still had fun in our house. It was an amazing thing. Okay? But we didn't have rules. We had conversations. Um, here's the challenge with rules. Number one, I would argue that most of the time when parents have rules, the rules are for the convenience of the parents, not the good of the children. And then the second problem comes in when you actually have to enforce the rules, and then you don't enforce the rules, and the kids know that you're not serious because you're too... You're too busy or you're too tired to enforce the rules. That becomes a problem as well. And then the worst part is when the rule doesn't apply to a context and you try to enforce it anyway, it, it, we just found it didn't work. We had conversations. We made decisions together. And that's the third thing. We, we wanted to raise our children to be good decision makers. And we started early. We didn't start when they were in high school. We started when they were little. We, 
little decision. Get them to think about what they're going to decide on and then live with the consequences. What are you going to have for breakfast? And by the way, I'm a good parent. I never offered my children Lucky Charms as a breakfast option. We would, we would promote good things for breakfast. Okay? Count Chocula was maybe in the running at times. Okay. But yeah, what are you going to wear? I mean, they're little decisions, but it, it starts to get their brain working in that, in that capacity. We wanted them to be good decision makers, and we started early. Matthew Henry says this, and by the way, there's this weird thing in biblical scholarship where if a person has two first names, you can trust everything he says. So Matthew Henry says this, part of raising children is to train and mature their judgments and work upon their reason. Again, the number of college students who cannot think critically is tragic. That used to be a thing in, in elementary school and high school that you would get kids to start thinking critically. A lot of parents today, they want to take the easy way. They, they want rules. I, I mean, let's just admit it. Those rules are more for our convenience than anything. We also now have things called digital babysitters and teachers. I, I just found this out this morning. Do you know what this is called? Anybody? Yeah, you're afraid to answer iPhone. Because you're right, you'd be wrong. This is an iBabysitter now. Okay? Now, I'm not saying don't give your, don't give your kids phone. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. But we're doing it a little bit too much, aren't we? It's a little bit too much. And then giving in all the time. Giving it. You know, your kids know you better than you know yourself. If you're one of those parents who does this, no, 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 ah, forget, go ahead. Okay, if that's the way you handle every time your child wants to do something, they know that, and they have more perseverance than you do, trust me. They have more energy than you do. They're going to hang in there a lot longer than you are, and they know that they're eventually going to win. Who's running the house at that point? It's hard, I know. I know. Here's the next one. Jackie and I always had a united front, but we discussed seriously and deeply th issues behind the scene. If she thought I was wrong about something, we talked about it, but not in front of the kids. Our chil Again, children are smart. They know how to divide and conquer parents like nobody's business, and they'll do that in order to get their way. And, and so we always had a united front, but we also discussed things behind the scenes. Also, we would show humility and ask for forgiveness when we blew it, and we blew it. The parent who never asks for forgiveness from their child is making a big mistake because you're wrong sometimes. I'm wrong sometimes. Parents need to have the humility to clean up the messes that they created. We also, this is a big deal, we showed appropriate, but we showed affection for each other in front of Shelby and Darby. And we made appropriate time away from our children for our relationship as well because we knew that if our relationship was strong, our kids would feel secure. Let me tell you something, and every child psychologist will tell you this, if, if, if your kids believe that your relationship isn't strong, they're insecure. You, you, you're dealing with insecure kids at, at that point when your relationship is a mess and they know it. Okay. Um, before we had children, I, I listened to Tom Schrader talk a lot about kids because I thought he was a great parent. He and, he and Susan were great parents. And um, he told the story of when his two daughters, Sarah and Haley, were 10 and 8, and he went to them, and he, and he said, hey, 
Kids, answer this question for as, as, a, as a parent. I, I'd like to know this. Do you, do you prefer quality time with your mom and me, or do you prefer quantity time? And Sarah, the 10-year-old, didn't even skip a beat. She said, I want quality time and a lot of it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a smart kid right there. But that's true. Uh, last thing, uh, this is just something that I, I did, and I did it with... Um, you know, I, I talked about it with Jackie, and, and she said, yeah, you got to go do that. Jackie has a different relationship with our daughters than I do, and that's just natural. That's going to happen. You're going to have different relationships with your different kids, and parents are going to have different relationships with the kids. But with each one of them, when Shelby turned 18, eight years ago, and when Darby turned 18, four years ago, I sat him down, and I had this conversation. I said, you're an adult now. We've raised you to be an adult specifically. You get to make your own decisions now. We're going to continue to fulfill what we believe is our responsibility to help you get through school and, and, and all of that. But you're an adult now. You can make all of your own decisions. But here's what I'm asking for. I want the privilege in your life when you're about to make a pretty important decision that you would come and discuss it with me and that you would listen, here's the key, without rolling your eyes to my input and my counsel. And what I'm going to give you in return for that is that when you go and you make your decision, if you decide not to follow my counsel, and if that goes south, if it goes wrong, I'm never going to say to you, I told you so, or you should have done it my way. I'm going to respect your decision. You're going to respect my input. And we're going to live in this relationship of respect and honor with each other and if things go south I'm going to be there to help you put it back together again to the extent that you would like me to help you do that that has been really important to our adult relationship going forward I'm still their dad but we have this incredible relationship where I get the privilege of being involved in their lives in that way why might good parenting and disciplined children be important? I think a big part of it is because of community. When parents are absent or indifferent and children are undisciplined, self-centered, ungrateful, and simply out of control, there is chaos. And everyone pays a price. But God, by his love, his sacrifice, and instruction, calls us to victory into this, into this life that exhibits the reality of gospel-centered transformation because he has actually adopted all of us as his sons and daughters. Ultimately, that's the narrative arc of the gospel. He has adopted all of us through Jesus Christ. A disobedient child and an exasperating, provocative parent are both examples of persons who are not bending their will to God's will, who are not living in wisdom. This is a fruit issue, the fruit of our sin that was born by Jesus and the fruit of his sacrifice being our joy and, and submission and gratitude. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and God, man, some heavy stuff this morning, and my prayer as always is that you would, you, would, you would apply the Holy Spirit to the minds and the hearts of the people who are here for this message, and that you would illuminate the truth, and you would eliminate what was just nonsense and foolish talk. God, we pray that 
your spirit would be the ultimate arbiter of truth in our lives. And so we ask that you would apply that to our hearts and then that, that we would have the courage to live out the gospel in our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.